Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and we have another great episode for you this week as I connected with J.D. Greer, pastor of the Summit Church and president of the Southern Baptist Convention. J.D.'s ministry has been marked by a consistent call to the church to keep the gospel at the heart of all we do. His most recent book, Above All, focuses on the power of the gospel as the source for the church's renewal. On this week's episode, J.D. and I tackle a very important and timely topic as we discuss the importance of keeping the gospel above our preferences and our politics. J.D. provides sound advice for pastors and ministry leaders when it comes to addressing political issues from a gospel-centric place. I believe this is a conversation every ministry leader would benefit from, especially as we are heading into a new election cycle here in the U.S., This is one you will also want to share with your colleagues, so please pass it along. And now, won't you join me in my conversation with J.D. Greer. J.D., it's so good to have you with us. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, brother. Um, First, I want to say congratulations on your re-election to a second term as president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, Congratulations or condolences? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. No, Uh, your first year, brother, was marked— by some really fresh things, you know, uh, as as we kind of watched and, and saw how God worked um, through your leadership, um, including your appointments to the national board being the most diverse in the history of the SBC, um, mm-hmm. which was really cool. People of color, women, um, pe- people who have never served before on the national board. Uh, super exciting. Can you share with us a little bit, uh, why did you feel compelled to make some of the leadership changes which you did? Well— I mean, obviously you want to start with the theological and the biblical, you know, I mean, in order to, we always say at our church that the church ought to reflect the diversity of its community and proclaim the diversity of them. And so this is a Kairos moment for us, like in the witness to the world of being like, you know, hey, this is a place where, where the different races and different cultures not only tolerate each other, but they love each other and they love each other across differences. They don't kind of blend into one monoculture or gradually all get on the same page politically necessarily. But, you know, we have something in Christ that's greater than than any of these cultural distinctives that, you know, that would threaten to divide us. And so I think it's important that we model that. Um, That's, you know, kind of one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is we need the wisdom of our brothers and sisters of color as we go as we go forward, sometimes people will will, will kind of act like, oh, well, this must be you just trying to be generous or you trying to, you know, have a photo op moment where, hey, now we're diverse or it's now it's time for us to share. But I mean, God, it, the United States, we know this is changing pretty dramatically demographically. Mm-hmm. And we need the wisdom of our brothers and sisters of color if we're going to be able to to effectively reach that, you know, uh, the, the, the new the new nation that we're you know, we're all part of, uh, it's, you know, it's that God has written a story into their community and written wisdom into it. That's that we are much poorer without. And so it, for me, it was just as it's not just the right thing to do. It was a, it was a necessary thing to do. You know, I often tell this and people, this surprises people, but 20% of the Southern Baptist convention right now, 20% of the membership are, 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 are people of color. Um, wow. all the churches we planted last year, mm-hmm. and it was in the, you know, it was a significant amount. 63% were led by leaders of color. So that shows you 
you know, not just who we are becoming, it shows us who we, who we are mm. and that ought to be reflected in our leadership. And so my appointments were, uh, you know, done to, uh, to address that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's excellent. Uh, JD, in your most recent book above all, you share that the source of renewal for the church, which is, I know, dear to your heart and in all of our hearts as, as we're um, trying to faithfully serve in the time that we have, you say the source of renewal for the church is the gospel and that the gospel stands above everything, uh, including you talk about over programs or politics, preferences over culture. And when we look at that, uh, these are probably all things that I think any ministry leader, any pastor, you know, if we were to, to ask them, they'd say, oh, yeah, of course the gospel stands above all these things, right? right. Yet, yeah, the anti-gospel guy. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. And yet you, um, you have made a point to, like, emphatically ring the bell on this once again, right? Right. Why, why do we need to be reminded that the gospel is above all? Yeah, no, great question. It really it goes back to comes some stuff that Luther, I don't want to say discovered, but at least re reacquainted the church with in the Reformation, and that is that the gospel. Is, I mean, Luther's famous statement is to progress in the Christian life is always to begin again, mm-hmm. and what he meant was that Christian growth is not growth beyond the gospel. Christian growth is growth, growth deeper into the gospel. It's going deeper into it that ultimately makes you you come alive. Most evangelicals, we talk about the gospel as if it's the diving board off of which you jump into the pool of Christianity. It's the ABCs. That's certainly how I you know, kind of grew up with it. I assumed it was for unbelievers. It was the prayer that you pray to begin the Christian life. But when you see what you know, Paul, how he talks about the gospel, for example, in the book of Romans, you know, he says it's the power of God unto salvation. The book of Romans is a book written to Christians. And it's 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 the deepest exploration of gospel doctrine that we have anywhere. And it's written to Christians to show them how they ought to live, how they ought to treat others, how they ought to you know, respond in their marriages or people to have, have sinned against them. And as a pastor now for you know 17 years here, what I've seen is that the deeper people go in the depths of gospel doctrine, the kind of the awareness, the sense of awe of who God is and what he's done for them, the more alive they become spiritually. And so, you know, you take that concept and you start to say, okay, what's the the center of of our strategy? What's the center of our, our, our preaching? What's the center of our mission? Is it that there are things that have begun to compete with the gospel as not at the center of our creed, but the center of our of our practice? Mm-hmm. I think you know, what you alluded to is is kind of, you know, everybody nods their head and says, of course, of course the gospel is the center. But w- when you look at like just um, when you look at whether it's the church calendar, whether you look at the, the, the subject of the preaching, the, the focus of the ministry, are we really looking at the gospel as the power of God unto renewal? And are we depending on it to bring not only life to those outside the church, but life to those inside? Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. And you touch in the book on some some of the positives of the gospel, like some of the some of the powerful things that we find in the gospel. And you talk about, you know, mission and multiplication, about grace about change. What are some of the, as we talk about kind of diving deeper into the gospel, what are some of those, those positive elements that, that maybe we need to kind of rediscover yeah. um, as the church? Well, I, I would really, Jason, answer it on two fronts. One is the center. It needs to be the center of our message. Mm-hmm. And then the other, it needs to be the center of our mission. And here's, here, here's what I mean by those two things. Message means that, that, 
ultimately everything that I am proposing as a means of spiritual growth has to be grounded in a sense of awe about who God is and what he has done. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is, is a very famous British pastor. Um, he preached in London in the 1950s, was kind of his his peak. And he, um, he, he, he talked about a, a discussion going on in the church at, in the 1950s about whether or not sermons ought to trend more toward the practical and relevant or whether they ought to trend more to the doctrinal. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Here we are, what, 70 years later, we're, we're still having the same argument. <laughs> and he said, he said, he said, I would say both those that way of framing the question is wrong. He said the goal of a um, of, of a lecture is that you leave with a page full of notes. The goal of a motivational speech is that you leave with, you know, action steps. He said the goal of a true gospel sermon is that you leave worshiping. Mm. There should be a time when the pen goes down and the eyes go up and you stop saying, oh, my God, look at all these things I've got to do for you. And you start saying, oh, my God, look at what you've done for me. Because in that moment, it's standing in, in awe of the gospel. That's when you really change. It's not Uncle JD's, you know, five steps to a better marriage that will make you a better husband. What makes us better husbands or wives is recognizing the five billion steps that Jesus took when he came to rescue me. That's what Paul does is he always goes back to the to all in the gospel. And, it, and that's the center of it. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, another British pastor, he said at the end of every sermon, he always plowed a trough back to the gospel. I used to think that that meant that at the end of every sermon, you just told people how to get saved, you know, like, hey, here's three, you know, here's the ABCs of salvation. But what Spurgeon meant was, think of it like a trough, you know, it's a trough is something the water goes through. And he's like, I've got to plow a trough back to the gospel because the water of life, the, the power to do whatever it is that we're talking about, ultimately, that comes from not a resolution to do better, but it comes from faith in the gospel. It's faith in the finished work that gives you the power to to live the spiritual life. It's um, you know, one of the ways that I say it in the book is only by being soaked in the fuel of what has been done, or you know, do we do we do we catch on fire in the in the power to do, or the power to do in the Christian life comes from being soaked in the fuel of what's been done. So that's the message component. The mission component is that it's really easy for secondary. Um, agendas to take over the church. And, and that's what I kind of go through in the book and talk about them. We'll, we'll start with the most obvious one, which, you know, is particularly relevant right about now and for the next year or so in our culture is is, is political um, engagement, where we start, you know, seeming like, well, the po politics, that's the really important discussion. What's the right answer to racial inequality? What's the right answer to, um, to you know, to uh, universal health care, whether or not it's necessary or empowering the poor, or, you know, justice and liberty? And, and these are, are important questions. I don't want to at all minimize them. They are, you know, one of the ways we love our neighbor is to is to engage well in politics. But but Paul said that the gospel was for him of first importance. That's first Corinthians 15. First importance means that there are other things that were also important, but they weren't of first importance. Right, right. Um, you know, when it comes to when it comes to political strategies, those are important, but they're not of first importance. Um, you know, I, I often tell our congregation, I'm like, you know, I might be wrong in my opinion on universal health care, whether or not I think it's helpful or I might be wrong in my opinions on global warming. Um, but I'm not wrong about the gospel. And so I don't want to let my opinions on the former ever keep people from hearing me on the latter. And it means that I show a restraint 
about talking about certain things that I think I'm right about. I mean, I, I hope you don't hear that arrogantly, but I think I'm right in my opinions on on healthcare. And I think I'm right in my opinions on taxation and, and global warming. If I didn't think I was right, I wouldn't hold the opinion. But but those aren't of first importance to me. And if that's going to put an obstacle in the way of of people hearing the gospel, then I will gladly sacrifice things of secondary importance to be able to champion the things of, of first importance. Yeah, that, that's that's good. And I'd, I'd love to dig in a little more because I, I really appreciated uh, the final handful of chapters in the book where you talked about, you know, uh, the gospel above my preference, gospel above my culture, gospel above uh, my po- politics, and especially in light of where we are as a society, right? There's no question that our society has become very divisive. In your book, you make a very clear statement, and you you write this. You say, I want to suggest that in our day, one of the most relevant and countercultural manifestations of gospel power will be multicultural unity in our churches. How do you see this um, this multicultural unity coming about in our churches? Well, I'll start with the way you started. I mean, you kind of connected that to political. You, you right. started the question on political, and that's not the only question when it comes to, to cross-cultural and multi-ethnic ministry, but it's it's kind of the elephant in the room, no pun intended, or the donkey <laughs> in the room, however you want to say it. Um, you know, it's sort of, the, it's sort of the, the thing nobody really wants to talk about because— you know, what does that mean? And for a lot of people, they think it means persuading people of another race or skin color to essentially believe what you believe about politics, uh, you know, which is just not <laughs> the, the thing that I that I, you know, in studying the New Testament, I'll give you a couple of quick little stories here that have really helped me. And I, I think I relate both these in the book. But one of them is um, the fact that of Jesus's 12 disciples that he chose. One of them is almost unexplicably, it just lists him out, you know, as with a little qualifier. It says Simon the Zealot. And then a couple, you know, lines down from that, it's Matthew the tax collector. Well, he didn't identify all the disciples by their jobs or their, you know, their interests or their hobbies or their political opinions. But what those two descriptors show you is that they were on opposite sides of the most pressing political question of their day, which was, what do you do with Rome's occupation? And the zealots thought, you know, the Romans are here, they're oppressive, they've stolen our land, you know, throw the bums out. Um, the, uh, you know, the tax collector said, well, you know, God sovereignly arranged this, we should, we should cooperate with them. And it was a, a pressing political problem. Jesus calls them both. And there's no, evidently, there's no like, you know, entry introduction or orientation where he instructs them on the proper way they should see this question. Um, <laughs> You know, what you find is I'm sure they had some really incendiary conversations by the campfire, right. you know, uh, doing this out. But 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 at the end of the day, they found a greater unity in the message and the mission of Jesus than they did in their political differences. And I think that's a that's a picture of, of how the church is going to go forward in unity. You know, it's no secret that what 80 some percent of white evangelicals back Trump and 90 some percent of black evangelicals didn't. Um I don't think that we're going to have to, you know, move that to where it's a lot closer in its percentages in order to be able to go forward in unity. I think we've got to say, hey, you know, we've got some important questions to discuss, you know, like what are the best political approaches? But those are not church defining issues. Church defining issues are the gospel. And we can disagree in secondary matters, even with unity and and primary ones. The other quick story I'll tell you, unless you want me to stop talking and you want to ask another question. Can I? No, go, man. I love it. So, so Luke chapter 12, you know, a guy comes to Jesus 
And he wants to complain to Jesus that his brother has stolen the inheritance from him, his older brother. Well, that's a legitimate social justice complaint in those days because older brothers could use their privilege to to steal, you know, to 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 short their 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 younger siblings. And it's a legitimate complaint. Jesus's response at first seems almost callous. He's like, man, who made me a judge over you? And then he proceeds to preach a sermon on greed, which would have confronted the idolatry of not just the older brother, but the younger brother, too. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus didn't care about justice? Of course not. I mean, the whole New Testament is about justice. Um, Does it mean that he didn't feel qualified or didn't feel smart enough to be able to get into the particulars of that case? Well, that's not true either. What it shows you is that in certain situations, he would show restraint when it came to particular cases and particular strategies, because for him to encumber himself with that level of public policy would have taken him away from his primary mission, which was to preach the gospel that confronts the human heart and saves the soul. Um, I think there's a lesson for the American church in that. Um, what I don't want to say, Jason, is that we ought to ever back down on preaching justice or we can somehow just just preach the gospel and you know, kind of ignore all the injustice around this. And I, I think we have to speak out again about injustice. But I think there's a certain level of strategy and policy prescription that we would be wise to stay out of. And where the Bible doesn't draw a straight line or a direct line, we shouldn't draw a, you know, a direct line. We can we can be clear on things like, for example, the sinfulness of abortion. We can be clear on the sinfulness of um, or, or, or the need for religious liberty, or we can be clear on things like, you know, the fact that we ought to care about the poor, but but the strategies, the best strategies for for, you know, empowering the poor. That's something that Christians could say, you know, I, you and I just don't see that the right way. And we ought to show restraint, not because we're unclear on what the right thing is, but because we don't want that to get in the way of, of preaching the message that saves. And that's what we see Jesus do in Luke 12. And I think there's a, a lot of lessons for that in the church. Now, like I said, that's not the only, that's not the only thing to consider when it comes to multicultural ministry, but I think it is a big it's a, you know, it's something that that we've got to reckon with if we are going to go forward in unity. There was a New York Times article that talked about a quiet exodus of African Americans from the white evangelical church because white evangelical churches have historically not known how to separate those things. And so we talk about political issues on the same level that we you know, demand the unity there that we that we we really should reserve for the gospel and the gospel alone. Mm, that's good. So JD, tell me. What are some, I mean, I mean, all that's super, super helpful. I'm thinking of the pastor who's listening in right now who knows, hey, we're heading into um, a whole nother, you know, election cycle. And uh, more than likely, you know, um, it looks like divisiveness or the rhetoric can, is going to, to be escalated once again, um, praying that it isn't. But, you know, we want to prepare, right? So w- what would you say to the pastor, you know, who's pastoring a church, and this is this is going to be coming up, and they are looking back to 2016 and saying, man, that was rough. Um, how am I going to navigate this one? You know, what, what, are, what are some practical things that uh, you would encourage pastors to consider? Well, the first thing is to building off the last point is to refrain from from any implication of this is how Christians ought, ought to vote, you know, mm-hmm. like this is what, what we ought to do. I mean, be right. clear where the Bible's clear. Right. I think we have to speak out against the absolute horrificness of 
the the you know abortion and the danger of you know um, of the encroachment on religious liberty. I, I think we've got to talk about justice issues, but to refrain from saying and because the Bible is clear here, therefore you ought to support X, Y, or Z. If the Bible doesn't draw a direct line, then then we shouldn't draw a direct line. The second thing I'd say is to recognize that there is some complexity in the political calculus that, that people use to, for, for what they ought to vote, you know, who and what they ought to vote for. Um, you know, there are people that, that, that just, that are like, you know, if they take the, like, for example, a pro-life issue and they say, therefore you should always vote for the most pro-life candidate. There are others who say, well, I'm pro-life, but I think there's a whole set of things, you know, that, that ought to go into uh, you know, considerations in, in an election. Now, I'm not saying both are equally right. I think that's a good discussion to have, but I don't think that ought to be a test of orthodoxy or a test for, for fellowship in the church. So I would encourage them to show some restraint. I'd encourage them to show some respect, uh, you know, with others in saying, you know, I realize that while you and I may agree on things like, you know, the, the issues I've mentioned, we we may not, you know, translate that into the same way, you know, same thing we do with the ballot box, which leads me to the third thing is that whatever you are, um, what, whatever side you, you, you tend to identify with or people tend to identify you with, even if it's, you know, they assume that about you, you ought to be really loud and clear about the, about the problems with, you know, the candidates that people associate you with. Let, 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 let me try that again because I can say it, I can say it in a, a clearer way. Um, George Yancey uh, is an African-American sociologist from North Texas University. He's been really, really helpful to me in, in how to, to navigate these issues. And he says, he says, he says, for example, he said, um, he says, if you look at all the issues and you feel like at the end of the day, you know, if you hold your nose and, and you, you just got to you, you got to vote for Trump or not vote, but you can't vote for the Democrat because of these, these issues. He says, if that's you, he said, your voice ought to be the loudest and clearest when the president or, you know, the, the Republican Party speaks in a way that denigrates certain people or overlooks their needs and their issues. He said, because if people assume that you're supporting, you know, that side for those issues, he said, I don't really have a problem with somebody looking at all the different issues and saying, I feel like, you know, I've got to vote this way. He said, what I do have a problem with is them not speaking out about the shortcomings and the, mm. the faultiness in there. He said, I would say the same thing on the other side. He said, if I were talking to a, um, to somebody who just said, you know, I just, the, I, I find the president's rhetoric so despicable that I feel like the Democrat is better for, you know, for the peacefulness of the country, even though I disagree with him or her on, on their stances on life and religious liberty and those things. He said, if that's you, then then you ought to speak out the clearest about the sinfulness of abortion. When they're having the Democratic debates, you ought to be the one tweeting, why are all of them unified about, you know, the fact that we need to have abortion on demand, you know, everywhere. He, he says, you ought to be the one that's speaking out there. And that's been helpful to me because, you know, the church I pastor is, by God's grace, growing in its multi-ethnicity, but we're still a largely white, you know, uh, congregation, I'd say, you know, 80% or so of our congregation is white, which means people assume that our church, if you did a poll, is going to vote, you know, typically, uh, you know, toward the, toward the right. Well, that just means for me that I need to be really, really clear with, with, with everyone, you know, what the Bible says on these issues, whether or not they line up with 
with the political affiliation of a lot of people in our congregation. Does that make sense? Is that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and I appreciate that, J.D., because I think that that kind of hits the nail on the head and, and I think helps people process through because the reality is, as we all know, there's not going to be a candidate who more than likely aligns um, every, on every single policy decision aligns with um, what we sense, you know, scripture upholds. Right. So right. The, so you can't you can't push yourself so deeply in, you know, when it comes to partisanship that you almost blind yourself and feel like you can't speak out in the midst of things that do not align with scripture. Right. And and I think that's and, – and the big thing for me, J.D., is the, the world outside of the church is is watching. Right. You know, they're hypervigilant right now. And right. so if if we want the, the gospel to, to be above all, as, as you've written um, so well, um, then I agree 100% that we need to be willing to whichever side we might align with to speak out on those issues that do not – um, align with with you know a biblical precedent or or align with scripture. Even more so with the things that are associated with you know w- whether or not the, that, that actually is reflective of our political affiliation. I just know what people assume. Right, right. I, that's where I've got to be clear. Now, I also want to say I know I'm never going to please them. I know that mm-hmm. you know MSNBC is probably never going to write a you know a positive article about me in the Summit Church and the SBC. I, I'm okay with that, and I'm not trying to to win their favor, but. I do know that I, you know, Scripture tells me to be above reproach. They tell tells me not to let my good be evil spoken of. And if the world is believing a narrative that, you know, whether it's white nationalism or whether it's just an uncaring attitude toward the LGBT community, or whether it's, I mean, you just name it, you name whatever it goes in there. Right. I just want to be clear. I can't. I, I may not be able to persuade them, but I want to not let my good be evil spoken of, and I want to show. Um, you know, yes, listen, these are these are issues that may not be associated. And there's a lot of sinfulness in the in the past with white evangelical churches. And I want to be clear that these things are sin. And 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 this is sin in this political party that we are often associated with. These things are sinful and they're wrong. And I, I want to speak out about them. And I want to I want to I want to speak out about clarity about the way forward. Yeah, it's good. That's good. I love that. One of the things that you you share in your book is you talk about um, just the importance of not putting obstacles in in people who are far from God, putting obstacles in their way for them to come and experience the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about? I know I I think that was in the chapter when you talk about maybe preferences, but yep. can you talk a little bit about how um, we in the local church need to kind of be aware and be thoughtful and prayerful when it comes to making it easy not that not that following Jesus is easy but making it easy for people to hear the gospel message and understand yeah. the truth of Christ yeah so there's a great story in Acts 15 where the apostles are considering what to do with some of the Jewish questions and Jewish preferred culture and some of these deeply ingrained ways of behavior and I love their statement you know we shouldn't make it hard for the Gentiles to turn to God we ought to look through and just say, what is it that is putting an obstacle in their path? And certainly when it comes to whether it's our language or traditions or preferences, our eye ought to be on the outside of the church and say, what makes it easy for them to, to hear and to understand? The maddest we see Jesus get in the New Testament 
it seems to me when he's overturning the money changers, you know, tables and what he says is it reveals kind of why he's mad. It's not just that they're buying and selling and making a profit. I mean, that that made him mad, too. But um, the reason he said that it bothered him so much was my house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And the place that they were doing the, the buying and selling was in the court of the Gentiles, which is the one place God had allowed the Gentiles to come in and observe Jewish worship, you know, um, uh, with the with the purpose of, you know, them becoming worshipers of God. And here they'd taken what was supposed to be a portal for the outsiders and they turned it into a place of convenience for the insiders. Well, I, I tend to think that Jesus would feel the same way about churches that say, well, this is just the way we've always done it. And these are the traditions that we're comfortable with. So they've got, you know, um, <laughs> they've got decorations from the 1950s and music from the 1940s. And, you know, if the 1950s ever come roaring back, they're going to be ready. They're going to be ready to, you know, reach reach people in the 1950s, but those, those days aren't coming back. Mm -hmm. And I, you, I think we ought to have the attitude that Paul has where he's like, you know, like I'll become anything to anybody thought by all means I might save some or where Jesus said, I, I gladly leave behind the comforts of the 99 to go after the one. And we've got to prioritize reaching the next generation or reaching our neighbors even more than we do our preferences. I, one of the things I point out in the book is a tragedy for a lot of churches is that they care more, seem to care more about preserving their tradition than they do reaching their grandchildren. Um, you know, you, we've got to, to, to lay this stuff on the altar. And there's one story um, I, I go back to in, in our church that um, that kind of crystallizes it for me is um, when I became pastor of this church, I didn't plant uh, the Summit Church. I, it was Homestead Heights Baptist Church, and it was 2002, and I came in as a young pastor, and we started to make a few changes to reach our community. It was sort of a sleepy Baptist church, you know, three or 400 people big, and and um, I remember shortly after we started making some of these changes, I baptized um, an African-American. As far as I know, it was the first African-American our church had ever baptized. I baptized him. And uh, this guy up in the baptistry gives this incredible testimony to the power of the gospel. Um, you know, it's a church. I mean, no dry eye in the place, I don't, I don't think. And, and a, an older member comes up to me after this, comes up to me and he, um, he grabs me by the shoulder. He says, son says, you know, I don't like a lot of these changes you're making in our church. <laughs> and I kind of, I kind of dropped my head because I was like, I'm not sure where this is going. And, and, uh, I look up at him and he's, he's all choked up and he's got a, a tear in his eye and he points toward the baptistry. And he said, but if that's what we get right there, you can count me in for all of them. Uh, you know, here's a guy who's like, I, I don't like to see my comforts challenged. Nobody does, but who cares what, what preferences I have about music and, and, you know, the style of the service, we've got to reach people and we got to sacrifice, lay on the altar our preferences in order to, to make the gospel accessible to people on the outside. I don't think that's only true for older people. I found that some of the most entrenched people, <laughs> ironically, are younger people. I had a younger planter tell me the other day, Jason, he's like, we're, I'm just trying to, to, to I'm trying to build the church that I always wanted to go to growing up. And I was like, you know, I, I want to be charitable with what you're saying, but who cares what kind of church you want it to be, go right. to grow? But what kind of church best reaches the people in your community? That's that's ought to be the focus of, of how we, we we build our churches. Yeah. Man, that's good. That's good. I love that. JD, um, as as we kind of begin to wrap up here, are there any any final words maybe you have, encouragement? You're, you've got the ear of, of pastors and ministry leaders. Anything else that you'd like to um, share with those who are listening in today? 
Yeah, it's just that, I mean, you know, God gives us creative gifts. He gives us mindset strategy. I'm a sucker for every new church leadership book that comes out also, and I have a library literally full of them, and I read them all the time. So I'm not against church growth. I'm not against great leadership strategies, but, you know, there's a real, there's a real danger in every generation of Christianity for good things, good things that ultimately are strategies of the flesh to displace the one thing that can bring life. Paul calls the gospel the power of God unto salvation. It is the only thing in Scripture, the gospel is the only thing in Scripture that is referred to directly as the power of God, not besides Jesus himself, not contains the power of God or you know, points you to the power of God, but is itself the power of God. Um, you know, it, it's the gospel that launched the Reformation, the, the student volunteer movement. If we're going to see a renewal of the church and a completion of the Great Commission in our day, it's not going to be because we, you know, crack the, the missional code. Um, it's going to be because we um, it's going to be because we have a restoration of of the preaching of the gospel and gospel mission and ministry. When the gospel is at the center of the church, the church thrives. By the way, if a really astute listener just figured out that I I, I quoted uh, um, a uh, one of Ed Stetzer's books. <laughs> Um, Ed would totally agree with what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, like yep, that. So, he would. He's Ed's. It's great. So anyway, I just wanted to be clear on that. Yeah, that's good, JD. And that's exactly what I thought of when you said that. <laughs> I was like, Ed. Anyway, um, awesome, brother. Love it. Love this conversation. Um, thank you for uh, your leadership at SBC. Thank you for what uh, your church, Summit Church, has been doing. Great things that God's been doing in you guys and through you guys. Thank you for this book. Above all. Encourage yeah. our listeners to uh, grab a copy. It's got some very, very helpful things, I think, and um, and just and thank you for Outreach Magazine and this podcast. I, I love, I love Outreach. I love to read the stuff. I always feel like I'm challenged and stretched whenever I do. Awesome, man. We certainly appreciate that. Well, thank you for your time, JD. Uh, God bless you, my friend. All right, man. We'll talk to you hopefully soon. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance, and if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well, and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.